Hello, and welcome to the latest Asset Allocator podcast. I'm Dave Baxter, and today we're talking about model portfolios. From asset allocation to fund selection, we'll be looking at what's changed over the past few months and how things might shift again in the months ahead. Joining me is my asset allocator colleague, Dan Jones. Um, Dan, let's begin first off on home territory. Um, in particular, let's talk about the concept of home bias. Uh, that's a, an accusation that is often levied at investment managers, whether for better or for worse. Is home bias a live issue for UK DFMs? Well, less so than it once was, perhaps. Uh, it was quite interesting, I think, some of the things we wrote towards the end of last year about a uh, almost a, a historic tipping point, if you will, if you don't want to, mm. that's not over-egging it too much for um, <laughs> For model portfolios, where we had a situation where, after several years of UK equities obviously being on the uh, the back burner a little bit due to relative underperformance, um, and uh, on the flip side, with US equities really roaring away, we we had the situation where the typical model portfolio almost had more in the US than the UK, which is really the, the first time we'd ever seen that seen that recorded. Uh, so that definitely went some way to uh, alleviating some of those concerns. In the past few months, obviously, we, we've seen that come back a bit. We've seen uh, the vaccine bounce has given uh, a bit of a boost to UK equities in terms of relative performance. Uh, there has been more interest from fund selectors in value plays, in particular, uh, of which the UK is pretty uh, pretty rich. So so that has come back a little bit. But, but even so, you're looking at around just under 20%, just under 20% of a balanced portfolio on average in UK shares uh, at the moment. Uh, some models, balanced models have around 25%, but even then they tend to be relatively well diversified. Are we still having many kind of notable underweights? Because what, what I remember from um, perhaps even two or three years ago was it, it was such a divisive issue. You know, some people saw it as a kind of really obvious bargain and then some people would, you know, the phrase wouldn't touch with a barge pole was kind of thrown around. Uh, are you still seeing that kind of division or? To, to an extent, there is some uh, there is some of that. I think actually, the uh, in terms of the UK, that has um, that is maybe where the, the home bias, uh, not necessarily using that phrase pejoratively, but where that does come in. I think some of those underweights, uh, people have been pretty swift to to close those as the UK has been uh, um, coming back to uh, to more people's attention. There aren't really that many models which would have you know less than even sort of 15, 10, 15 percent in the UK. Um, handful here and there but actually the, the much larger overweights are reserved for other regions even um even the us which, which obviously has been a big driver of global equity returns for a long time now uh there's probably more notable underweights there I, i'd say looking at our database of of asset allocations for, for a number of dfms it's actually there where you see a couple of people who are really going, you know, into single figures or even zero weight in the US still. Uh, again, these are very uh, isolated cases, but it's uh, it's there. And of course, in the regions as well, where we've seen a lot of uh, gnashing of teeth, toing and froing on areas like Japan, Europe, EM. So that those are proportionally smaller amounts. And therefore, I think it's a little easier for people to, to wash their hands of them and, and zero weight those areas as well. Mm, interesting. And and on the um kind of UK point, um how do how does the DFM community compare with multi asset funds? Um they're always, I suppose, kind of notable potential rivals. And recently we've seen some interesting accusation that um 
multi-asset funds have had a bit too much of a reliance on UK stocks, and then that's kind of hurt their performance. Yeah, there, there have been some reports recently, as you say, looking at that that active multi-asset fund, the traditional uh, multi-asset uh, big names uh, of old, and, and how that performance has, has perhaps suffered. I mean, the UK is a part of that, obviously, as we were just saying, the, the relative performance has been an issue there. So if you are if you do have a decent amount in the UK, your relative performance might have might have suffered. I think for those for those active multi-asset funds, you know, run by the uh, run by asset managers more than wealth managers, if you want to distinguish them that way. I think the underperformance has, has come maybe for from other reasons. One is partly to do with with risk budgets. I think the, those active multi-asset funds, what we see when we compare them to our databases, they they tend to be a little bit lighter on equities in general than uh, than DFMs. If you compare like for like, you know, balanced fund with a with a balanced model portfolio, which has caused some performance issues. Again, whether that's whether that's a problem for multi-asset funds or whether they say, well, look, you know, we're supposed to be balanced. We we think we shouldn't actually have sixty. 65% in equities, as some of these model portfolios do. There's maybe a good case for that, even if uh, ultimately they've lost out in performance terms. They could say, well, from a risk-reward basis, this is what we've been doing. The other problem, I think, for multi-asset funds, though, in general, and to an extent for model portfolios, when you compare them with, say, the big big passive rivals, you know, you think Life Strategy and the like, Vanguard, which obviously take in huge amounts of money, um, the big issue there has been Vanguard uh, and some of these benchmarks as well are still quite laden up with traditional government bond exposures. For obvious reasons, uh, asset managers, wealth managers have been avoiding them or diversifying their bond exposures. But until the first quarter of this year, really, um, uh, it's worked very well to have a large amount of government bonds. We've seen them you know, confound mm. the doubters again and again, treasuries, gilts. We've seen it happen again in the past few weeks. So, Again, whether that's been a sensible move from a long-term perspective it is open for debate, but it's uh, undoubtable, I think, undeniable that holding those government bonds has been a real boost to performance for some of those passive funds, and that has effective active fund relative performance. Mm, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if looking further afield does ever pay off, or like you say, whether those uh, that kind of government bonds momentum continues. Moving on to kind of the fund selection front, what do you see are the kind of funds that are forming the building blocks um, of model portfolios nowadays? Um, and have you seen any kind of interesting shifts there considering the um, the major market rotation that we've seen in the last half year or so? Yeah, so this is obviously something we, we look at quite closely on, on the newsletter and through our databases again. Uh, in the UK, we, we've written quite a lot, uh, as you know, about um, the big four UK equity funds, as, as we call them, which really do form the core part of, of so many, uh, almost every uh, portfolio uh, in some form or another. And they are Linsal Train, UK Equity, Line Trust, Special Situations, 91, uh, UK Alpha and Man GLG, Undervalued Assets. And we really see, you know, there's, it's a very rare occasion where a model portfolio doesn't hold one if not two or three of those in there as part of their UK equity bucket and as a big part of it at that. I think there was a tendency to double down on that, especially in the past uh, year or so when UK was out of favour, when people were maybe struggling to, th to think what else they could do. You know, some of those funds, not all of them, but a couple of them, Linsal Train being an obvious one, do have a growth bias as well, a quality growth emphasis. So that was obviously helpful for a large part of the last few years. 
Again, in, in more recent times, we've seen, uh, as you'd expect, a bit more interest in the, the value side of things. As asset allocations have gone that way, so to fund selection. So we've seen uh, things like Polar Capital, UK Value Ops, come back to the fore a bit more and, and, and funds like that, Schroeder, UK Recovery. But to an extent, those are still around the edges. The big four are still, they're so dominant that it, I think it will take quite a while, even if we get a sustained shift to value it might take quite some time before we see their, their sort of dominance move away. You do see people, you know, at the margin, maybe moving out of Linz or Train a little bit, things like that, but but is not make, moving the dial that much. In the US, to take the other big example we've been talking about, things are a little bit more spread out there. Obviously, passives rule the roost to an extent. People like to have passive exposure as a, as a building block there, and then they complement that with a variety of funds, funds, you know, Loomis Sales is a popular one, um, US equity leaders, things like that. Again, we've seen a bit of a shift towards mid cap, small cap, as those parts of the market really took off last year. But I think, yeah, this year, again, things have broadened down to little. In the other regions, again, there's not been too much movement in terms of fund selection. You, people tend to be sticking with the, uh, you know, the core names there. You know, in emerging markets, you've got uh, RWC and Hermes. In Asia, you've got Schroeder's. Stewart to an extent in Europe you've got BlackRock and again those are those are kind of the real the big selections that, that people tend to um, gravitate to particularly when those allocations are relatively small as part of the overall portfolio. Are we I mean I guess this is partly a function of perhaps weightings but are we still seeing fund selectors tending to use a greater number of funds in areas like the UK? You mean in comparison to other other areas? Yeah. So, for example, having three UK funds and then just having one or two Asia funds, or that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. We we are we are seeing that again as a I think as you say that's a factor of, of the size of the allocations. Increasingly, we are we are seeing that as well in uh, when it comes to global specialist equity. Again, that's an area we've talked about a bit in recent years. Uh, I'm sure we'll come on to it again in a moment as well. But but that's also an area now where people are kind of going for. A, almost a core satellite approach with their global holdings because those global and thematic funds have, have grown to a decent proportion of the portfolio now. So that gives them scope to to mix and match a bit more than they than they once would have done. And what's the, um, I suppose, what's the kind of outlook of you when it comes to, you mentioned thematic funds, um, we see that in the active space, but also particularly thematic ETFs have really taken off in the last year or so. But quite interestingly, that's a very you know, disputed area. For example, Alan Miller said last week um, he avoided them like the plague. Um, and then our, our recent podcast guest, Stephen Peters, um, he wasn't perhaps quite so harsh, but he, he was certainly sceptical. Are we seeing any signs of buyers kind of getting more interested? And if so, are they kind of opening themselves up to to problems in future? Yeah, I mean, obviously people have strong strong opinions on the subject, I think, um, as, you, as those, those quotes suggest. I think... Um, uh, we, we're definitely seeing more and more interest there. There's definitely been people dipping their toe in a lot more into uh, the thematic space, probably with a degree of recognition that that is something that's very hard to do, which is why these are still relatively small uh, selections. Uh, the reason the global slash thematic bucket is so big overall, I think, is a combination of people choosing more mainstream, broader global equity funds, perhaps a global you know, ESG theme fund, uh, and tech funds as well are in that bucket, of course. So that accounts for the bulk of it. But but we are seeing um, interest in some of these smaller, more niche plays as well, uh, as I say, as they get the opportunity to mix and match with those um, 
that overall global allocation. In terms of opening themselves up to trouble, I, I think people are keeping those small enough for now that, that it's not going to be too much of an issue, even if some of these themes do calf the rails. Well, one of one of the interesting things, though, is um, we see these selections spread really far and wide. It, it's quite similar to, um, uh, if, I suppose, if I could compare it to anything, it would be the alternatives uh, space, funnily enough, just because the sheer number of selections out there mean there's, it's very difficult to see people congregating around individual funds because there's just so many hundreds of different selections they could they could make here, um, especially when it comes to ETFs. The, the interesting thing for me is is perhaps how th- those ETF selections compare where when you look at things like liquidity, when you look at kind of average fund holdings. Now, in, in the past, typically you would think a fund's going to be a certain size for a, a wealth manager to hold it. And it is true, sometimes you look at some of these ETFs uh, people are holding. You look at, you know, uh, cybersecurity. Interestingly enough, is one that starting to appear on a couple of uh, in a couple of portfolios. And you think, oh, look at that cybersecurity ETF, and and you look at the LNG one. It turns out to be two billion in size already. So <laughs> there's not really any uh, issues there in terms of um, uh, co-investor risk. But the flip side is there are some smaller ETFs that people are buying, which are which are pretty small overall, which are you know sub 100 million sub maybe 50 million in some cases, which is very rare for, for a fund held by wealth managers nowadays. And I think it's because they're holding them in such small amounts, they feel confident enough to dip their toe in uh, and to just try it out. It's not going to be the end of the world if that goes completely wrong, or even in a ultra worst case scenario, you know, if liquidity really locks up in that portfolio. Mm. I suppose with some of those kind of very, uh, very kind of topical themes, um, you also potentially have scope for a much rapid much more rapid kind of asset growth you look at the um obviously there's the iShares global clean energy etf which has kind of run into trouble because of this but last year took on you know billions having been relatively small for for a decade or so yeah i suppose that's right yeah i suppose that is true that in some ways it's the the opposite problem nowadays some of these funds is not not them uh, withering away it's more what happens if they yeah if they boom like that and like you said the the clean energy um etf had to well, effectively rejigged or its holdings as a result of that. So, yeah, I'm sure people will be conscious of that too. And, and yeah, it's kind of the opposite problem too, uh, to what we've seen in the past in some ways. Mm. So another kind of popular area is ESG. Um, in the last year, we've we've started to see ESG funds appear in mainstream model portfolios for the first time. Um, what does that mean for asset allocation and fund selection preferences? You're right. Yeah, we, we have seen a lot of that uh, in our in our databases. We are seeing ESG funds creep up the fund selection preference list, particularly uh, on a global equity basis. When you think of Bailey Gifford, Positive Change, 91 Global Environment, and also in the UK, when, uh, uh, again, things like Royal London, UK Sustainable Leaders, Lion Trust Funds, these are some of the uh, the really popular ones that, that, having main, that have mainstream appeal now, it seems. What is interesting, perhaps, is how DFMs are being led by product providers uh, on this front. When you look at the dedicated ESG portfolios, uh, you might think, you know, offhand, the US, this is really an area where if we, again, we return to the UK versus US allocation discussion, where in in an ESG portfolio, you know, the US could perhaps account for more than the UK when you think about the tech weighting there versus the materials weighting here. But actually, it's the opposite. And I think that's due to product choice uh, or the lack thereof in the US. When we look at our database focusing on ESG funds, it's really only Brown Advisory and Leg Mason who uh, have any kind of prominence in terms of US equity uh, specialists. 
Whereas in the UK, there's really a huge range of uh, UK focused sustainable funds um, available. So, so that is actually leading to a bigger gap uh, in favour of the UK, even in ESG portfolios. And despite what you might think about uh, the relative sustainability uh, uh, features of those respective markets. So does that have a knock on effects on kind of weightings, that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that, that's that's what happens there too. We see that too. So, you know, the, the typical UK weighting in an ESG portfolio is is a little bit higher than uh, in a mainstream portfolio, but it's more obvious in the US where the the typical US equity weighting in an ESG portfolio is actually quite a bit lower than we're seeing in mainstream uh, regular model portfolios. So let's um, let's come back for the end to fixed income. Um, obviously, there's been a huge amount going on over here in the last uh, 18 months or so. We've seen the credit rally last year. Um, we've seen the government bonds sell off um, this year. And now more recently, we've seen the interest in inflation-linked bonds. Um, the million-dollar question here is, what is next? Yeah, um, I, I suppose couldn't profess to, to answer that uh, <laughs> uh, in terms of my own opinions, but certainly in, in terms of what we've been seeing uh, from DFMs, there are a few interesting insights here. As you say, last year, people really loaded up on credit credit funds, typically corporate bond funds and strategic bond funds, which had that high yield element to them. This year, obviously, we've gone through the government bond sell-off, which has kind of confirmed, in some cases, many DFMs, long-standing fears about the asset class and the vulnerability to uh, that kind of spike. Um, uh, but that said, obviously, in recent weeks, we, we've seen a bit of a, a rally there as well, which has perhaps left some people wondering again, well, well, what do I do with my fixed income allocation? As you say, linkers, there's really been a, a huge interest in that area this year for obvious reasons. People trying to capture that rise in inflation expectations. But as uh, our previous guest, Ben Seager-Scott, said in this podcast the other week, um, there's perhaps an argument soon that uh, that environment is going to change a little bit and it's no longer going to be about the change in inflation expectations alone. So, so there's some question marks over linkers as well. And I think we're seeing all those question marks reflected in recent uh uh, shifts. One thing we we saw, we spoke about earlier this week, or we wrote about on the newsletter, is uh, really quite a, quite a concerted move away from fixed income of all kinds um, over the past couple of months. Certainly, by the standards of month on month changes, you know, we we've seen people shift some of that fixed income allocation into equities if they're feeling a bit more optimistic. We've seen some people, if they're still feeling relatively cautious, you know, move a little bit of it to to cash or to alternatives. So. That the million dollar question is still a very much an open one and people are not really sure it seems to me right now what to do and the solution in some of those cases is just to dial things down a little bit um just to allocate elsewhere so again we'll see how long that lasts we'll see what happens uh, as we go through the summer months into the autumn and talking about talking about tapering in the, the feds case and things like that and, and you can be sure we'll keep on uh, uh monitoring and writing about what, what's happening to fixed income allocations in response to that I guess it takes us back to another big question, uh, uh, eternal question of what do you do if you don't want to buy bonds? What else do you buy? Well, exactly. Yeah. That's the question which no one is still <laughs> quite resolved to their satisfaction, I think. Yeah. Well, lots to think about there. Um, I'm afraid that's all we have time for now, but uh, you can check previous episodes of the Asset Allocator podcast on Acast, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And of course, do look out for our newsletters with all the latest analysis on asset allocation and fund selection in the DFM space. Thank you and goodbye. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. 
Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.